0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, this is Tom Switzer from Between the Lines and it's great to have your company again. Now today on the show, the 80th anniversary of Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union and our guest who tells the story of Operation Barbarossa is Jonathan Dimbleby. Now the Dimbleby family, as many of you may be aware, dominated BBC current affairs programs. Jonathan, his brother David, and his father Richard. But in recent times, Jonathan has distinguished himself as a leading historian. So let's get started.
1: 22nd of June, 1941, Hitler unleashed Operation Barbarossa, the largest invasion in history. Its target, Stalin's Soviet Union.
0: We'll go back eight decades. Nazi Germany dominates Europe. Poland, France, they have been conquered and occupied. Britain is just weathering the Nazi storm. Now, Hitler turns east to communist Russia it's june 22 1941. operation barbarossa the greatest invasion force in history along a front that stretched from the baltics to the balkans now when the soviet dictator joseph stalin was woken with the news of hitler's invasion he wouldn't believe it but over the next six months from june 22 1941 the germans suffered more than a million casualties the Soviet forces about 5 million casualties, and 1 million Jews were murdered. Operation Barbarossa was Hitler's greatest and most foolish gamble that ultimately led to Germany's defeat and the Nazi dictator's downfall. My guest today brings to life the scale of these extraordinarily grim events from 80 years ago, Jonathan Dimbleby, is author of Barbarossa. How Hitler Lost the War, published by Viking. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him to ABC Radio. Hi there, Jonathan. Hi, nice to join you. Now, many Westerners are brought up to believe that it was the British and the Americans who defeated Hitler. You disagree with this narrative. Why? I think it's counterfactual.
2: I think it's understandable because British Americans, indeed Australians, Commonwealth Empire troops fought, people lost their lives, they were severely wounded, they went through great tribulations and families grieved, and now present generations uh, remember with proper awe all that those men and women achieved. However, the facts of the matter are, in my view, that the Second World War
0: against Hitler in Europe was won and lost in the East, not in the West. Yes, but the D Day invasion of 1944, didn't that effectively open up a second front in Western Europe, which, which basically took pressure off the Soviet Union? That's what your critic would say in response. It did indeed do exactly that. And I don't challenge that.
2: And it was useful. And it accelerated what would have been the victory in any case. By that time, well before D Day, the Americans and the British were well aware. That Hitler, the skids were under him, that he was going to be doomed, that the Russians were advancing, the Soviet forces, the Red Army was advancing well before then. By 1943, at the very least, people were aware of that in the West. And In fact, you could go back right to the end of 1941, where the British Foreign Secretary was warning, we'd better come to terms with Stalin now. Uh, while he's in a position of relative weakness and we are in a position of relative strength so
0: that he can't dictate terms when it's over. Yeah, I'm struck by this uh, sentence in your book, Jonathan. Quote, The historic debt owed to those who fought their way across France to Berlin, these are the Americans, the Brits primarily, is not that they defeated the Nazis, but that they saved Western Europe from Stalin's tyranny. Yep. I think there were two possibilities. Either the Russians would have
2: walked into most of Europe and certainly been the major power in Europe, able to dictate terms. Or uh, had Hitler been killed or removed, as I'm sure he would have been under the circumstances which were then approaching, a deal might have been done, might have been done, I think it's unlikely, between the Nazis or at least the Nazi successors, the Germans and the uh, Soviet Union, repeating arrangements that they'd had much earlier in the century, which would have again left that combination, whatever it might have been, uh, in control of Europe. So D-Day and afterwards, yes, took some of the heat off the Red Army. It accelerated their progress. It was of significance, as was the lend-lease supply. But it was going to happen by advancing Finally, from the Russian perspective, across Western Europe, from the Normandy landings, Hitler had to divert troops to the Western Front. They fought bitterly to protect. And we struggled towards uh, Berlin and got there and held, in effect, what became Western Europe
0: In the Cold War. Okay, well, let's put all this in some historical context. You dedicate the first quarter of your book, Jonathan, to the German Russian diplomacy. This is from the early 20s to the late 30s. You say the seeds of Barbarossa are with a Soviet German agreement in 1922. Tell us more.
2: (laughs) Well, my editor was rather taken aback at Viking when I said (laughs) I was going to start the book there, but he, he was very glad once he read it that I had done so. And that's because I found myself, you know, I've been a journalist all my life. And whenever I was in a place around the world, you want to know, how did this happen? How did this come about? And we don't often get the chance to do that. You take snapshots. And in the case of the invasion of Barbarossa, I wanted to know how it happened. So I went back to the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact of August 1939. How did that happen? And that took me back and back. Now, I could have Gone back to the Middle Ages, actually, that the key thing was at the end of the First World War, the two European behemoths, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, as it was to become, were pariah states. They were excluded from Versailles. A solution was imposed upon Germany, which Germany could not accept, was unwilling to accept. Uh, The Russians were treated as though they didn't count. And there was a natural urge of those two most powerful states, one with by far the largest population on the continent, the Soviet Union, the other, the most industrially advanced nation on the continent. There was a common interest in coming together at that point. They had no natural amity, but a common interest in forging a relationship. And if you go Back to 1922 and the Treaty of Rapallo, which took place at Easter of 1922 in Italy, this secret deal completely tore up the attempts by the British and the French and the rest of Europe to solve the problems created Versailles. It didn't work, the attempt at Genoa to create a new Europe economically. So the terms of the deal were very simple, The Soviet Union gained sales of raw materials, which Germany greatly needed. Germany gained space to develop its own warfare in the Soviet Union, illegally, and despite the Treaty of Versailles. This this was under secret protocols, the military part. And they've created a diplomatic concordat, and that lasted. And it lasted because it was in their mutual self-interest. And completely lacking in any uh, trust, and it collapsed to, in the violent way which led to the to Barbarossa.
0: Hitler, of course, breaks his word. he attacks the Soviet Union and you make the point Jonathan that the the more intelligence Stalin received about Hitler's invasion plans the more reluctant he Stalin was to believe it a uh, question here is why i mean why did Stalin seem to trust Hitler more than his own mother it's a it's a very a very good question solzhenitsyn
2: uh, was i think the source of that quote uh, about uh, trusting hitler more than his own mother it's a vivid way of putting it he did not want to recognize the truth that's my my view. He did not want to face the fact because he knew that the Red Army was in no position to defend uh, the Soviet borders that had been created by the division across Europe from the Balkans to the Baltic. Um, And he uh, therefore defied anyone. He denounced the spies who were very well informed. Victor Sorge, for instance, being one of them in Japan, Informed even up until the days and the leaders of the of the three uh, army groups in detail refused to accept that evidence, and I think it came down to the fact it could not surely be true that he couldn't keep at bay the Germans for longer. And it, it is a stunning and astonishing fact of of history because the result was that the German armies were able to, to walk freely
0: knife through butter to start with, into uh, Soviet territory. I was going to say, for the Nazis, the invasion seemed to start well. So take us back to the northern summer of 1941, say to the first three months after the invasion, so July, August, September. Well, at the very beginning, the two armies on paper
2: were sort of matched. In fact, the Soviet army was much bigger than the German armies. More tanks, more artillery, but the quality, was not good. The training was poor. The Red Army was demoralised
0: because of the purges in 1938. That's a key point. So Stalin had purged a lot of his senior military leaders in the late 30s, correct? All of those who he feared might be going to challenge him,
2: even when he was actually unassailable. And the German army had triumphed in the lowlands. It had swept through uh, Western Europe. It had broken uh, the French it was challenging the British and Hitler and his generals, whether they believed him, whether they were committed to his vision, they had every certainty that he could not be challenged in what turned out to be a dramatically dangerous venture from the German point of view so that within uh, 14 days they'd advanced something like uh,
0: 300 miles or more extraordinary taking hundreds of thousands of prisoners but Jonathan the uh, apparent success was a mirage why that was the
2: chief of staff of the of the German armed forces mm-hmm. and one of his generals Heinrich was writing of the huge mental stress endured by his men saying because of the huge underestimate of the ability of the Red Army to take punishment, see, he says there's no sign of an end, despite all the victories it won. <laughs> it doesn't seem as if the Russians' will to resist is broken or that people want to re- be rid of their Bolshevik leaders. So they were aware that they were up against a formidable foe, not least because um, the numbers of soldiers available uh, to Stalin, who was very content to have them mown down, as indeed was was Hitler, mm-hmm. that no democratic state could have begun to contemplate.
0: Yeah, see, a lot of historians would say that the reason for the success just boils down to the mud and the cold of minus 40 degrees Celsius by early winter. You're not so convinced, are you? I think it was the
2: rationale that was offered by uh, many of the Wehrmacht leaders After the war, that's what did it, the terrible weather for which they were unprepared. And they'd got themselves into a state where their army could hardly move effectively, whereas the Russians could move freely. But there was, you know, the weather conditions were one of the phenomena (laughs) over which they had no control and for which they should have been well prepared. But they were not because it was so poorly planned. But all that did in my mind was to uh, highlight and exacerbate a problem that was already there. It was already the case that the Russians were taking more and more punishment effectively. Their weapons were improving. The tanks that were coming on stream at a far more rapid rate than the Germans were able to uh, to rival, their air force had been shattered. So the air force was still very weak. The air force had been virtually destroyed on the first day of, of, of Barbarossa. But the logistics meant that the The supply lines were getting longer and longer. The replacements couldn't come into place. The units were decimated. And the senior frontline generals, the the best of them, were soon despairing. They explained it in part as being the consequence of the weather, but essentially they blamed it on the shortages, the lack of proper clothing, the absence of fuel for their tanks, and the sheer exhaustion of their soldiers. On RN,
1: this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
0: Jonathan Dimbleby is author of Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. You highlight the extraordinary commitment of um, Soviet soldiers and civilians to Stalin's great patriotic war. Uh, how do you account for this? Is, is terror alone the explanation? I think it was twofold. The Soviet soldiers
2: were terrorized by the regime. They lived in fear. They knew that um, if they uh, surrendered or deserted, their families would be punished, that if they were caught, they would be killed. So that operated as a very powerful incentive. It was also the fact that they'd rapidly discovered if they were captured, their fate was worse than death on the battlefield. By the end of the war, three million its soldiers had died in captivity, up to two million of those died by the end of 1941 because they were starved, beaten, murdered in captivity. So that was the second thing. The other thing was that a great many of them saw their land being taken by, they called him a fascist invader. And their homesteads, their farms, their families were being destroyed. Their villages and towns were being razed to the ground. And patriotism ran very deep in the Russian soul. So they were going to get rid of this invader. And Stalin was very clever in shifting his rhetoric very early on in July 1941 from communist uh, slogans that uh, destroy proper thinking and replaced that with appeals to patriotism, to the great history of Mother Russia. And those combination of factors led to them putting up a resistance that, The Germans have never envisaged, and they should have known it because the Russians have fought like that
0: in the past. Well, that's right. Napoleonic France, of course, uh, in the early 1800s, and then, of course, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Germany. Uh, So Russia had been prepared for this. Now, tell us about the cold blooded killing of Jews. Already by December 1941, a million Jews had been killed. Now, you and your researcher do provide an impressive account of really just heartbreaking accounts from the Russian archives. Jonathan Dimbleby.
2: It is, it, it is almost unbearable to read. On the one hand, the way in which the murderers, Himmler and Heydrich's forces that mopped up behind the lines, the Einsatzgruppen, there were four of them, they were called. Basically, that was a euphemism. They were task forces, they were called. Their first task was to eliminate commissars, uh, partisans, and anyone who could be associated with the regime. That rapidly slipped into identifying anyone who uh, was a commissar or a, likely to be a threat, identifying them as a, as a Jew. And of course, Hitler had already made it very clear that his, one of his objectives uh, was to eliminate uh, the basilus, the virus of the Jew from Europe. That was one of his objectives. didn't mind how it was done to start with. What happened? was from the uh, summer of, of 1941, the Einsatzgruppen swept through, very often supported by militia groups in the countries that they were taking, in the Baltics, in Ukraine, in Poland, and down into uh, the Balkans as well. They rounded up men, women, and children, and they lined them up on the edge of pits, very formally, very well organized, very well recorded in detail to send back to Berlin and mowed them down. And they sometimes took very great delight in it. It wasn't just a a duty to destroy the Jews. They enjoyed um, shooting women. They enjoyed throwing babies up into the air and bayoneting or using them as target practice. It is hideous and it's almost impossible to read, but I felt it was extraordinarily important not to forget that that was a large part of what happened on that front in 19. 41 and uh the, the, the those who tell the story the survivors on the one hand and also those just as hideous those who were participants who who sort of spoke in pride of what they'd achieved or were achieving and and it was as you said it was about uh, around about a million of those jews were killed and this the, the the gas chambers auschwitz Chelmno and the others, uh, Treblinka, were only just in their infancy. They would started to use, explore gas because Himmler realised that they couldn't get rid of the Jews by any other way than killing them, and they couldn't kill them fast enough by shooting them. And it also did cause amongst some a sort of uh, mental health problems at shooting so many people. So they they devised the gas chambers as an alternative better solution. And that research started in in 1941, based on actually earlier research that had been done into the killing of, of people with mental health problems before
0: the war. Jonathan Dimbleby is author of Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. Simple question, Jonathan. Was Hitler's greatest ideological foe the Soviet Union? Hitler had
2: two ideological foes. He he regarded the Soviet Union with great hatred. It was the Bolshevik-Jewish conspiracy. And uh, he also regarded America as the great Satan as being a capitalist Jewish conspiracy. But his drive against the Soviet Union, um, you only have to go back to, to, to Mein Kampf to see it, Was based partly on ideology to destroy the Bolshevism, partly to destroy the Jews, and partly to create Lebensraum space, massive space, and particularly in Ukraine and further west, along with all the industrial potential, the raw materials. So it wasn't one thing alone. If you look at an airplane crash, it's very rarely one unique cause. It's a combination of factors. And I think in this case, those three factors, the urge to destroy Soviet communism, the urge to eliminate the Jews from Europe, and the urge to create Lebensraum combined to make the Soviet Union the first target in the belief or hope that then Britain, because the invasion had became clearly impossible uh, after the Battle of Britain, but in the hope that Britain would collapse and or that America would not come to uh, Britain's aid and therefore you could knock out Britain as well or force Britain, more likely, force Britain to the conference table as indeed from time to time Churchill warned when he was trying to get America more closely involved in the war.
1: This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
0: Now, Jonathan, the conventional wisdom is that Hitler's greatest ideological foe was the Soviet Union and you write that Hitler's um, vision for the Third Reich was to destroy the Soviet Union. Not everyone agrees. The Cambridge historian Brendan Sims, he was on this program last year. Here he is identifying what he believes is Hitler's real enemy.
1: In the international sphere, his main enemy was clearly the United States and the British Empire, more so than the Soviet Union. Not that he's not worried about the Soviet Union, but his main concern is clearly Anglo-American. Critically, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, is driven not primarily by the ideological concern, but by this straightforward desire to gain territory and resources, which is directed not against the Soviet Union, but against the Anglo-Americans. In other words, we can only survive, and this has been the theme since the 1920s, we can only survive against the United States and the British Empire if we, too, have got large amounts of space just as they have. And so he targets the Soviet Union, not because it's his primary ideological enemy, doesn't feature much uh, in the uh, actual military and strategic planning documents for Barbarossa, uh, but rather because it's weak. These poor people have got Bolshevism, they're afflicted, and therefore it will be easier uh, to take them over. Now, that proved not to be the case, which is, I think, the principal reason why we read history backwards Hmm. and therefore attach more significance to this ideological element and anti-Soviet element than it really deserves.
0: That's Professor Brendan Sims, author of Hitler, Only the World Was Enough. That was on Between the Lines last year. Jonathan Dimbleby.
2: Well, I respond first of all by saying that I greatly respect Brendan as an historian and and know him. And I therefore only respectfully disagree with that uh, isolation of the issue as being A, the need just for the resources and B, that the prime enemy were the Americans and the British. In fact, for a long time, he hoped to be able to have an accord with the British. He thought that they could share the plundering of the world together, and that's what he wanted. And the fact that it wasn't part of, I think he said, the, the, the military and strategic planning, well, it, it wouldn't have been because the ideological objective was not a, a necessary part of military and strategic planning. What is interesting about that, though, is that when Hitler, in the middle of 1941, dithered for four weeks or more, allowing the Russians space to regroup, He was torn between going south to the Ukraine and conquering the south and the oil of the Caucasus on the one hand, and on the other, uh, decapitating the the Soviet Union by collapsing Moscow. And he believed that the semi-subhuman people of of the Soviet Union, indeed subhuman was the term he very frequently used, were weak and were uh, enthralled to Bolshevism. And that's why Bolshevism was very important. The idea—it seems to me—that uh, that he wasn't opposed to Bolshevism—it it, it just flies in the face of the of too much mm. evidence. So he, he said in Mein Kampf, he, he he said something along the lines of Bolshevism must be exterminated. Mm. Moscow is the center of the doctrine; must disappear from the earth's surface as soon as its riches have been brought to shelter. That's the kind of stuff he was saying in Mein Kampf, and certainly in his dinner.
0: Dinner table conversation. Yeah, Brendan Sims would respond and say that in Mein Kampf, uh, believe it or not, uh, Hitler focuses a lot on Anglo American international capitalism. That's
2: true, because he, he, he was a Nazi. National socialism was his vision. Capitalism was an enemy, communism was an enemy, and national socialism was the, was the way That
0: was what Nazism was. Final question, Jonathan. What do you think is the lesson of Operation Barbarossa? I think. The
2: Operation Barbarossa showed us in military terms that it was impossible to break the Soviet Union by land battle and would ever so be. I think there's a wider lesson and it goes back to Russia's own past, always threatened by invaders always threatened by great powers that might seize this or that part of the territory and if you fast forward to the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and then the recreation of of Russia and all that followed i think that we in the west have tended to ignore that facet that two things one genuinely russian leaders have feared the outside world. And secondly, there's no better way of reinforcing the support of an autocratic regime like Putin's regime than by constantly reminding your citizens that that threat exists and that you need to guard yourself against it. Had we been more, I think, balanced and more cautious after the fall of the Soviet Union and not treated it with relish as a source of great capitalist uh, wealth on the one hand, and an ability to reinforce NATO as the dominant force in Europe, I think we might have been able to have a a better relationship than we we had. You know, you can't second guess whether or not uh, they would have gone into Crimea or into Ukraine or threatening as they, to a degree, threaten uh, the Baltic states. You can't second guess that because we just don't yet know. But you can suggest that had our relationship been one more of equals than than of uh, democratic conquerors, I think that life might have been healthier for all of us in Europe.
0: Yes. In other words, Russia had strategic sensibilities, a sphere of influence well before Lenin and Stalin arrived on the scene. Jonathan, an absolute thrill having you on ABC Radio. Thank you so much it's been a pleasure nice talking to you jonathan dimbleby he's author of barbarossa how hitler lost the war it's published by viking and it's available across all good bookstores across australia well that's it for the show this week and if you'd like to hear this or other episodes including last week's interview with deborah tabart on the dire state of the australian koala if you'd like to hear that episode just go to abc.net.au and follow the prompts to between the lines or of course you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you download your shows online. This is Tom Switzer and thanks so much for listening.